Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors, Take a Walk and Make a Podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we're preaching. So let's just get it over with. What is astonishing you today, friend? Well, I have two things. I first bet you do. Of all, I first bet you of do. all, it is such a delight to my soul <laughs> to share with our podcast audience. We were... Um, uh, about an hour ago on a Zoom meeting, uh, the Presbyterian Charlotte had its um, what um, quarterly meeting, and uh, Kate was giving a presentation, and she was sharing her screen, sharing some pictures, and her presentation was over, and she couldn't stop sharing. I'm like, that is just, that is just a beautiful metaphor. I, I, I really appreciate <laughs> the... And wait, wait, wait. No, I'm, I'm, I, I have more. And she actually said, I can't stop sharing. <laughs> I, I just am appreciating the way you're telling this story because it sounds kind of boring. And in real life, what, it was what? way more humiliating than that. Um, so it's fine. We were having a little presbytery watch party. And I will say, I grumble and have been known to grumble, See, yay, even on this podcast See, about presbytery, about the PCUSA, not about the presbytery, whatever. I've been known to grumble, I say, in an understated way. Um, but I want to say for the record that I look forward to Presbytery, not the meetings per se, because they are meetings, but I really deeply enjoy gathering with other, um, Presbyterian pastors in our area, many of whom I deeply, authentically like and admire, like truly, truly, truly enjoy. And I really enjoy going to physical meetings, again, really almost never for anything that happens on the agenda. Sorry, telling the truth. Um, but I really enjoy seeing people and getting to connect and hearing what's happening. And I enjoy reacting to what is happening sometimes with my friends reacting um, that's that's mild so I mean, you I I just really commentary. enjoy it I do I have I have opinions um and what I know and you have a, I, wow and we it's possible astonished. I know it's possible that is the name of the segment it is possible that the Lord thought I needed a slight bit of humbling and so, yes, even though we are 19 months into the pandemic, I was, we were on a Zoom call, which I mean, easily three quarters of every, all my meetings are on Zoom now. Yes. And I'm not 106 and I understand how to work the technology and perhaps because in his wisdom, Jesus knew I needed to be knocked down a peg or two all of a sudden at the end of the presentation, I just could not figure out where the stop sharing button was. Let's see, and you shared your... I shared my screen because I was showing your, these beautiful images. But after the I pictures, you shared your sermon from last week, <laughs> the manuscript. You shared a picture of your family. I mean, it could have been so much worse. And what is even worse is I was so focused on trying to find the stop share button that I like totally minimized the entire Zoom call. And then I was couldn't figure out how to maximize it. And then I was so focused on that that I didn't realize that I was still unmuted. So I was giving a running commentary. And the blessing is I did not, um, as we say, speak in tongues at any point during <laughs> that. And it does give me slight satisfaction to remember that, Yolando, you were here and you were like falling down on the floor laughing. And it that was, was audible, too. Like they heard you talk, too. So anyway, I looked like a chump, which I occasionally do for Jesus <laughs> And it's that fine. wasn't for so, Jesus. I mean, no, no, no. But I mean, like in service of Jesus at times, I'm just very much farther out in front of my skis and I look like an idiot. And that is something that I've accepted. The fool for Christ thing is not a metaphor. It is often a literal description of my public persona. And I, I accept that. I accept that. It was that. a gift. I, I am glad to Reminds give a gift to my colleagues. Reminds me of that scripture where it says, um, 
make my joy complete. It just Thank it could you. have it been. All I can say is it could have been so, so, so much worse. It could have been so much worse. So I'm grateful. The Lord is gracious with me. Well, speaking of joy, let me tell you what's really astonishing me. We had a, uh, we didn't call it this, but it was a, a kind of a fall festival after worship this past Sunday. We worshiped outside and it was wonderful. Energy was high. We doubled our attendance. Um, we have a pharmacy next door to our campus, and they came and gave COVID and flu shots. About a quarter of the people who came received a COVID or a flu shot. There was a bouncy house for kids. Um, I nearly hurt myself, broke my neck on it, but it was a ton of fun. Um, it was a real blessing. I was supposed to preach. We had planned to preach on the joy of a servant, and I was driving home about three o'clock that afternoon and just thinking about the day, and what came to me was we lived that out. We mm -hmm. lived out the joy of serving our neighborhood. One of the things we did was in worship, we took a moment to recognize and pray for the flourishing of the businesses in our part of the city. And we, we are, um, we, our, our part of the city is in transition. Um, there, there, there are some businesses coming, but the businesses that have been there have been there for a long time. There are a lot of mom and pop shops, um, that have been struggling during the pandemic. And so we took some time to name them and to pray for them. And uh, we, we contacted as many as we could to let them know we were going to do this. And it just felt, well, we were just filled with joy to be able to do that for our neighborhood because we believe that God desires the flourishing of our part of the city. Yeah, I think it's so important because, I mean, two things. We, we are called, and I think sometimes in our corner of the body of Christ, we, we're, we're focused in a good way on embodied acts of ministry, concrete acts of ministry. Like we really take James seriously. Like it doesn't do any good to tell a brother or sister in need, like go be warm and well-fed. Like you have to, you know, you have to you meet that something. need or else your prayers are really just defensive. They're almost spiritual abuse. Right. So I, we, I don't think we get that, um, in, in a way that is good and God honoring. And we also need to remember that the we are spiritual institutions. We are spiritual communities. And I think sometimes we can become so focused on what is tangible and what is um, visible and what is concrete that we can begin to believe that if we don't have an abundance of that to offer that we have nothing to offer and we have no place. Correct. And we're sort of sitting yes. around thinking like, well, let's wait until we get more people here and then we'll do some ministry that matters. We... Um, I mean, I've said before, people will come to me in sincerity a lot over the, over my years of ministry, not just the Grove, but other places and say like, man, when I win the lottery, I'm going to, I'm really going to invest in the church. And I, I mean, I, I just, it is such a telling comment of how deeply we have internalized consumer hypercapitalism. It's sincere, but misguided. Right. And so, so, um, I think what is important is to say there's no reason on God's green earth Every single congregation cannot be sincerely and authentically praying for the flourishing of their neighborhood. And there's no reason that every single congregation can't be going out into their one mile circumference and, and going to businesses and saying, you know, we are going to be praying for the flourishing of your business. We're going to be praying for you to get the resources you need so that you're, you know, whatever, whatever it is. And I think we don't do it. And the reason we don't do it is because we think our praying doesn't matter because we think that God can only do what we have within us to do. And, and I say we, and I, I mean, I am a white middle-class woman. So I think that there are obviously people who have been disenfranchised and abused by the systems of our culture who then know that, um, God works beyond the physical and beyond the visible and beyond the channels, visible channels of power, right? In a way that sometimes 
some of us for whom society was designed to benefit don't know that. And so, but yeah, I just think like it doesn't, it surprises me. And then it doesn't surprise me that people would say it matters to me that a congregation would come and say, Hey, we're going to be praying for your dry cleaning business because to us, it might be just a dry cleaning business, but to you, it is, you know, your life. It is your life's work. It is the way that you provide for your family. It is the way that you're, you know, it's not, there's no just in the kingdom of God and there's no artificial demarcation between sacred and secular. And so people now more than ever um, are seeking to know that they're part of something, that they're surrounded by a community of people that are for them and not against them. And, and to be able to bear witness to that in a non-transactional way is, is really powerful. And regardless of what kind of effect it has on quote, our institution, it's what we exist to do and nothing is stopping us except our own vision. And I think, so, so that's really beautiful. And then the other thing is, yeah, I think a lot of times when we're thinking about ministry, we don't pay enough attention to joy as an indicator to the presence of the spirit that when we're really, um, serving in the way that God is calling us to serve, then there should be joy. And if there's not, that doesn't necessarily mean that we're doing the wrong thing, but it might mean that we are doing it from the wrong um, posture, Mm -hmm. from the wrong mindset, that we have wrong expectations. So I'm not saying like, don't do anything except the things that give us pleasure, because that is obviously an unhelpful indicator of faithfulness. But if we're sure that we're doing the right thing, but we're just filled with you know, frustration and despair and hatefulness and bitterness, we, we need to recognize like, okay, something's off and maybe it's not the ministry and maybe it's not the people we're serving. Maybe it's us. Maybe there are resources around us that we are refusing to tap into. Maybe we want to be the givers and not the takers. Maybe we're rejecting the, the people that God has placed around us who would like to serve and equip, I mean, whatever it is. But yeah, I think really serving Jesus there's joy. And so if there's no joy, that should be, I mean, a, a flock of canaries in the coal mine. Something's not right. When I gave the benediction, I said to those gathered, when this time of worship is over, kids are going to go to the bouncy house. Kids are going to get their faces painted and we're going to paint pumpkins and there's food and COVID shots and flu shots, and we're going to do all these things. But the reason we're doing them is because in spite of all of the negative things we see every night on the news, we know that that world is passing away. New creation is emerging. And so we can celebrate this Lord's Day. We can jump in the bouncy house. We can just enjoy one another's company because we... As, as as hard as the season is, there is joy, and it's not from us. It is the joy of the Lord, and people really appreciate right. that. Right. It's not from us, and it's not dependent, it's upon, not dependent us. upon us. It's not dependent upon us. And we don't honor God by refusing to be joyful. Like, And I do think some of us have, have I mean, the enemy of our souls is, is shrewd, and so I think, you know, some of us have been convinced that it is um, unloving, Uh, you know, it is insensitive and, um, you know, that, that if you care about justice, if you care about, um, the suffering of the poor, then, then how can you be happy even for one single second of the day? Um, and I think the reality is, um, there's a time for weeping and there's a time for joy and there's a time, you know, to, to refuse to rejoice in the good gifts of God in front of us that doesn't honor God and we have to be able to do both. Um, and so, so to say, you know, today, I mean, in your, in your case, like we have the privilege to gather in this place in, in the sun, in the safety together. Um, and we can just enjoy, not just, we can perceive the great gift to be community together that this is a gift and we don't have to purchase it and we don't have to earn it. Mm-hmm. Um, 
that that's that's a beautiful thing. A next step for our team that we're starting to talk about now is when we show up at these businesses, let's not simply pray for the business as great as that is. Well, let's let's ask about their families. Let's ask about them. How can we pray for you personally? And what if we started showing up the congregations, other other churches in our neighborhood and asking, how can we serve you? What's mm-hmm. going on here that we could help you with? We don't need any credit. We don't need we don't need anything. We want to help you with what God is doing here. Mm-hmm. And like how how much fun would that be? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think the reality is we do have really incalculable riches that we don't see and we don't value properly and we we don't share with the world because we think they're worthless. And I think that, you know, if you read about capitalism, hyper-capitalism, you know, one of the things that keeps the economy going is, you know, is perpetuating the myth of scarcity and anxiety. And that if people are unhappy and scared, they will buy things. And so I think just to be able to say it's good to gather together and it, you know, there's no, there's no cost and there's no requirement for entrance and it's just intrinsically good to be together. And it is a way of experiencing the presence of God that we are called to community, not to individual relationships, but to commute, not only to individual relationships, but to community. That's, I mean, that's very subversive and, um, and people are drawn to that. So the first word in our mission statement is joy. Yeah. And so, I mean, it's, we, we must be a community of joy because we say that's part of the reason God has us on that campus, on that piece of land is to be a community of joy yeah, in and, and for yeah. that neighborhood. And people don't need another community of people who are telling them what to think mm-hmm. or what to believe or how to behave. People need a place for rest and restoration and to, and, and, you know, rebuilding and it's the joy of the Lord. That's our strength. Mm -hmm. And I think, again, we can't give what we don't have. And so part of it is just no shame, no guilt, but to say, if our community is joyless, then nobody needs another place to show up and feel bad about themselves and feel like they're not doing enough. And if what we say about Jesus is true, then there should be joy in the house of the Lord. And so if there's not, no guilt, no shame, but let's just get curious about that. And let's just trust that God doesn't want to throw us away like garbage. But if, if we pray and say, God, we we need a fresh anointing of the joy of the Lord, that God will be faithful to give that to us. So yeah, that's, that's good. exciting. Yeah. So what's astonishing you? You know, we had a really um, beautiful day in worship on Sunday, and I... I'm always, I mean, I, I love being a pastor and I love the Grove community and it just makes me happy for all of us to be together. And it makes me happy to have grown in my wisdom and maturity that when things go wrong on Sunday morning, which they do, um, I don't, I mean, I think I just spent a lot of years in ministry and, and I'm, and at the Grove, um, I mean, I was happy and I was joyful and I was always, but I was also just anxious. Like I just always felt like things were about to fall apart and the curtain was about to be pulled back. And, and I really felt like, you know, I was the one who maybe, you know, was holding us back, not enough faith, not enough maturity, not, you know, if I had just been smarter or worked harder, you know, that God was sending all the resources, which I still experience and believe that, you know, God is, is well-resourced our congregation. And so if it's not, you know, if things aren't coming together, if things don't look a certain way, that's on me and, and it could all fall apart. And I think I'm just grateful, um, at, and, and astonished at being at a place now when things can genuinely go wrong and I finally have an authentic, healthy sense of detachment of like, okay, it is possible that 
on Sunday in worship when we were getting ready to start rehearsal for worship on Sunday morning for the the team that leads worship um, was our worship leader, Edmund, who's just amazing and gifted and our drummer. And um, no one else had been at practice on Sunday night ex- um, except for um, our friend Carl, who does sound production, right? So um, on Sunday morning, um, I didn't know, I don't go to worship rehearsal because I I don't lead, I don't musically lead the congregation. Um, and I, I didn't know. And then on Sunday morning, someone came in to say like, oh, you know, no one's here. And it might just be, you know, these two people on the platform. And I think, you know, there's just a time in the past where that really would have plunged me into, you know, guilt and shame, like literally like, oh, this is who I am. I can't make this, you know, whatever. And I'm doing something wrong and we're going to look stupid. And there are people who are coming and they're going to see this and go, oh, I don't want to be a part of this. But, you know, and, and, you know, if I had done a better job of communicating or resourcing or casting vision for this part, like I'm letting down the team, you know, whatever. And, and I really authentically, and I'm astonished that on Sunday morning, I was like, well, you know, either some more folks are going to come, which can happen. Um, and, and another, um, man on our praise team did come um or it's going to be you know Edmund leading from the keyboard and Jeff on drums and the platform will look empty and you know what that's okay because Edmund is a tremendously gifted worship leader and and maybe you know this is what we God can make something good come out of this and I I think like I for so often, I've been so focused on ministry or understood my job as a pastor as being the problem solver. So if there, you know, I think earlier I would have said like, okay, who, let me get on the phone right now and send some emergency texts to some people and say like, oh, you've got to get here because, you know, and, and it would have, and people would have done it, even though I really try to tell people that explicitly to say no to me, but I just, I wouldn't have known how else to just not let my anxiety run the table. Um, and, and just to be able to say like, okay, it might appear this Sunday. It's possible that it will appear this Sunday that, you know, the congregation is not as vital as it is. And it might appear this Sunday as though everything is falling apart, but I know that it's not. <laughs> and I know that if there is something that looks like a lack of, on this Sunday, that that might be a necessary part of the growing and deepening and maturing process of people on the team. And I don't need to step in, you know, because part of me was, I wasn't done with writing the sermon. And I was like, well, I can go in there. Like I can sing, I've sung with the team before. And then at least there'd be one other woman. And I just was like, I don't need to do that. This is not my ministry. I'm happy to do it. It's not that I didn't want to. In fact, part of me really wanted to step in and save the day or look like I saved the day or look, whatever. But I, I just know that I didn't need to, that whatever, you know, sometimes the ministry appears one way and sometimes it appears another way, but what it is and what it appears are two different things. And so I just, I'm astonished that I didn't flip out. And I'm astonished that, you know, I really experienced the Holy Spirit encouraging me that everything was fine, that God was on the throne, that, you know, what we do with the Grove matters and, um, you know, salvation isn't at stake, right? That God is going to do what God is going to do in our congregation because it's God's congregation and we're giving our lives to God and whatever had God has for us is good, even if it doesn't, you know, flourish in the way that we expect to see it flourishing. And so I just was really I mean, I was astonished at my own internal temperature. I was astonished that I could actually authentically be the thing that I often fake being, which is like, oh, I'm not concerned. We're great. And, I, and I'm grateful for that spiritual growth that is happening now because things are hard. And so I'm glad for that. Like there, we're not going to not have hard times. That's not in the offering. And so to be able to say like, okay, well, I'm in a hard time. We're in a hard season right now, all of us and all of our congregations, and that's tough. And, and, and what if we had the perspective, not of, okay, let's just grit our teeth and bear it until it's over, but let's get really curious about what is possible in this time. What goodness is here, not in spite of this, but because of this. Um, so 
that is what I'm astonished about. Over the years, I've had a number of people going through terrible illnesses, especially those who had to be in a hospital, say things to me like, you know, this illness, this disease is terrible. And I don't think God is punishing me. And yet God is using this horrible thing to bring me to a renewed spirituality, a, a renewed sense of God's presence, um, sharpening my own spiritual sense, heightening my awareness. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways I experienced this pandemic, as, as horrible as, as the coronavirus is, there, there is this gift that God is giving us in that we're being stripped of so many things that are not essential, so many mm -hmm. things that we thought were essential. So many illusions. So many illusions. Yes, that's good. And uh, so many things that we gave our time and energy to that were just not helping, not taking us anywhere, not doing anything. Idols, really. And now we are freer to focus on things that matter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, and that's not toxic positivity, right? No, like, not at all. It's not about saying that things are okay when they're not okay. But, I mean, I think the reality is, like, sometimes you, you want to pray, and these are faithful prayers, like, just God, get me out of here, right? Like, you mm -hmm. want to pray a prayer, it's the equivalent of, like, clicking your heels together three times and, like, magically being to the place where you want to be. And those are healthy prayers, and I, I sometimes God answers them, and that's great. But, but when there isn't, you know, instant supernatural healing, when there isn't, you know, an influx of 40 people saying, you know, here I am with exactly what you were looking for right now, when, you know, when you're still, when you open your eyes and you're still in the situation, then the good news of the gospel is God makes all things work together yes. for those who love. And that does not mean that it's good. It's not good. It's bad. What it means, and, I, and I'm thinking about this because our, our Advent, theme at the Grove is going to be redemption, uh, you know, that God redeems. God redeems what is evil. Well, God... it makes me think of Psalm 23, where the psalmist says, goodness and mercy follow me all the days of my mm -hmm. life. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think the Hebrew has the sense of like chasing, like they mm -hmm. will catch up to me. They will overtake me. Mm -hmm. And what's going to overtake me is God's goodness and God's mercy. And I think like some of us are still, and we were talking about this on the walk, like, I mean, especially in the PCUSA, like we, we know what the prosperity gospel is, right? The prosperity gospel, which says like, if you do good, God will do good. And when good things happen to you, that's proof that God loves you. And when bad things happen to you, that's proof that you've messed up and God is angry. And so basically, if you want to know who is walking with God, just look at who, who's got stuff, who, who looks good to you, who mm -hmm. looks good in your eyes. Mm -hmm. And to us as Americans, people that look good to us are young and they're pretty and they're rich and they're powerful. And, um, and, and most Presbyterians know that that's not true, right? Like, but even if we reject some of the most explicit versions of the prosperity gospel, we, we do still fall prey to some of the more subtle manifestations of it, which is that like, you know, we're good people and, you know, and, and nothing really, really bad will happen to us. Or if it does, like it, it won't really destroy our lives or, you know, and just none, it's just not true. Like, terrible things happen to the beloved of the Lord. And the way we know that is the cross, right? I mean, but the message of the cross is not something bad happened to Jesus. So nothing bad will ever happen to you. The message of the cross is when you are in places of suffering, earned and unearned suffering, deserved and undeserved suffering, God is a redeemer who doesn't just get you out of it, but brings something good to you in it and through it. And I think sometimes like the goodness and mercy thing, whatever, this isn't, I mean, this isn't, um, this is an exegesis of the text, but you know, one of the images that I have for me is we're so in a rush to manipulate our surroundings, to get out of what is hard that sometimes you know, we can't just accept that we are where we are and stop for a minute and let the goodness and mercy of a God catch up to us in it, right? Like so That's many good. times we just want to say, like, I'm going to do what I have to do to get out of this situation, whether it's like, you know, use a fake address to get my kid into the good school or, you know, have 
you know, seek out the relationship that I want because I'm in the bad marriage where like, I'm going to do whatever I need to do to get out of this painful situation because I'm so sure that God's not in it and God's got nothing for me in it. And I can just, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, do what I need to do to get to another place that we're so quick. And then we just slam the door and pretend it never happened. And, and we, we, well, I mean, this is, we're looking at this, um, emotionally healthy discipleship course. And one of the marks of emotionally healthy discipleship, which is, I think just his word for authentic discipleship is, you know, that authentic disciples discover the treasures hidden in grief and loss. And when we spend our whole lives avoiding grief and loss, and when we in our communities act as though grief and loss never comes, or that when it does come, all we can do is just, you know, bear down and hope to survive it. We don't teach people that there's treasures buried in grief and loss, and they're not avoidable. And so we can look for what is hidden for us in it. And the way that, you know, redemption comes in places of terror and, and evil and loss. And, and that's the story of the Messiah. Mm. So what are you thinking about? Well, I'm thinking about seamless transition. We are getting started um, reading in small groups, one in person on Sundays and then one um, together on Tuesday nights in Zoom because I know how to use Zoom. <laughs> um, this, so you say. So I say. <laughs> evidence to the contrary. Um, this guy, Pete Scazzaro, who's actually a Pentecostal uh, pastor in New York City, but it's also... I mean, he's, he's been to all the right places. He studied at Princeton and all, you know, um, defying the stereotypes that we in the PCUSA often have of Pentecostal parts of the body of Christ. Um, and he's been doing this work on what he's terming emotionally healthy discipleship for, for years. Um, and, and really just asking the basic question of like, why do so many churches, why are so many churches so busy and the people who are parts of those communities really are not discernibly different than everyone else in the world. And mm. if they are discernibly different, sometimes they're like, mm. I'm sorry, objectively worse, like more full of hatred and anger and judgment and bitterness. Mm -hmm. And it, like, why is that? If, mm -hmm. if, and if, if Jesus isn't the problem and Jesus is not the problem, then, you know, perhaps we ought to seriously consider that it's us and that, you know, the ways of doing church that are so familiar to us and that we're so excellent at and that we love so much are perhaps not what God was, was envisioning in the gospel, which is a big, like, duh, right? And so he, he talks about, he actually has this great opening image of a, um, a story that's actually in Oliver Sacks, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat, which is a great, great, great book. Um, he, um, he, Oliver Sacks is a neurologist and he, one of the women in his care who is in a, in a facility that he's a part of is a blind woman with cerebral palsy and she has no use of her hands. And when he meets her, he's studying her because they're trying to figure out what, why neurologically she can't use her hands because there's cerebral palsy doesn't manifest itself in that way. So, so why can't she use her hands? There's no, there's no physical reason why. So is there a neurological reason? And he looks at her and her story. And what, what he realizes is because she's blind with cere cerebral palsy, her whole life, people have fed her and cared for her so much so that she's never had to use her hands. So they literally are useless to her because she's never, she's never, no one has ever given her the opportunity. No one has ever expected that of her. And, and so one of the things he does, and this sounds so cruel, I think, which says a lot about our psychology as, as helpers and healers, um, is he tells the nurses, um, when you bring your, tr her tray into her, put it just out of reach, right? Like put a fork in her hand, whatever. And, and, and they just leave it there and longer and longer. And like, surely, I mean, and they fed her. Okay. But like over time, just having what she wanted just out of reach, she, she had the impulse to stretch and do a thing she didn't think she could do. And she began 
She learned to feed herself and then she learned to do everything. It was this whole new world. She could read Braille and she began to like work with clay and she became this celebrated sculptor known as like the blind sculptress of St. wherever the asylum was. And I just thought, I mean, and he, Pete Scazzaro uses it because it's a perfect analogy for the undiscipled body of Christ, right? Mm -hmm. That we have this potential to literally be embodied servants of Jesus and full of the spirit of Jesus and living in the kingdom here and now and imparting those kingdom values and affecting change. And, but, but many leaders in the churches have just artificially decided that, that people, that, that people can be church members, but they can't be disciples of Christ Mm -hmm. and that their hands are just useless lumps of clay. And we don't want to be cruel. So we just spoon feed people thing and we tell them like, no, no, this isn't for you. And, you know, and and so I just, I really appreciate that because I experienced that to be true. And we've talked about that before. And, and I'll just say um, in hindsight that he identifies four main problems, the four failures of discipleship in the contemporary American church. And I, they're so relevant. And I think all branches of the body of Christ in America, that one is we tolerate emotional immaturity, that there are just people who behave badly. And for lots of reasons, either because we don't want to hurt them or because we need their money, we just make excuses for them. We tell the people who they hurt to go ahead and forgive them. And we just never tell people the truth about their behavior. And we, and we don't go to people and say, hey, you belong here and you are worthy, but this is not how we talk here. This is not how we act here. Like, you know, we don't disciple people. The second is we emphasize doing for God over being with God. Just, yes, we're so anxious about saving our institutions that people show up and we put them to work. And that the third is we ignore the treasures of church history. Like we think the Jesus movement started five minutes ago. And we think that anything that happened a couple centuries ago has nothing to teach us. And I'm not talking about saying, you know, we can't say anything unless running it through Calvin first. Like I'm not talking about idolizing church history, which I think sometimes in the PCUSA we kind of do, but I'm talking about like reasonably saying like people today are not that different than people 500 years ago and the Holy Spirit is exactly the same. And so what can we learn? Um, and then the, the fourth is we define success wrongly. And, and what he says later in the book, which is so true is like, we, we need to let love be the measure of success in our community, real love, not niceness, not sentimentality, not fakeness, but we're not even going for an authentic community of love in our churches. Like we're going for, effective goodness producers, busy do-gooders, mm-hmm. and not a community of people who authentically love one another. So I just, I think that's so spot on and I'm really excited to be talking about it and praying about it and just like importing it into the culture of the Grove because it's not my church, it's God's church. And we are all creating the culture there and having those conversations I think is, is the beginning of opening ourselves up in a really vulnerable way to the transformative work that God wants to do. And service is at the middle of our mission. It's at the heart of our life together at the Grove. But the end of our mission statement is coming alive in Christ, right? And so I think it's just about saying like, hey, we aren't here to run errands for God. We are here to discover and become the people we are created to be. And those are people who are as integrated into the spirit of Jesus as Jesus and the Holy Spirit and God creator are integrated in the triune nature of God. So that's what I'm thinking. Yeah. How crazy would it be if we went to the leaders at the Ford Motor Company, for example, and asked them what they did? And they said, we make cars. And then we asked them, well, what is a car? And they scratched their heads and went, well, we, we kind of don't really know. We don't have a clear image for what a good car is. That's kind of how I see the church. You ask most people in the church, what is the mission of the church? They'll say, oh, to make disciples. What is a disciple? No, they won't. <laughs> oh, well, <laughs> when I ask in our community, that's a, that's, that's, a, that's a pretty common response. We exist to make disciples. Well, what is a disciple? That's where it gets real foggy for people. We're not, we equate, and you you said this, discipleship with membership and being a good person. 
and, and doing good. And even mm-hmm. the Matthew 25 initiative, which I'm for, I, I, I think uh, our church writ large, our denomination needs to just have a clear vision to go after. And so Matthew 25 to me is as good as, as any other, right? I really, I'm for it. Um, and I, I still think that one of the reasons people are going for it is because it appeals to our ego and our pride that we as the Presbyterian church, we can in systemic racism, which let me be clear, God is doing it and we need to be a part of what God is doing and eradicate poverty. God is doing it and we need to be a part of what God is doing and then making vital congregations like God is doing it and we need to be a part of it. But I think like to say we want to make disciples just doesn't sound special and important enough for most Presbyterians. And at the same time, we're working to be anti-racist and we're anti-poverty, all those wonderful things. For the average Presbyterian, if you say in worship, we are going to lose ourselves in unashamed praise to Jesus well, now you've just gone too far because we don't do that. That's, we, we do things. We're not really with Jesus like that. Right, and right? I think, yeah, that, that second one about emphasizes doing for God mm-hmm. over being with God. Like, I think a lot of Presbyterians, I mean, and you and I, we've talked about this like explicitly, being in meetings, and you've said to people who are naming a big problem, well, the first thing we need to do is pray. And around this table of leaders, not in this Presbytery, they said, why, like, why would what we if, do why that? Why would we do that? Yeah. Like, we have a real problem to solve. Like, why would we spend time with God? Like, for us, often praying is what you do to virtue signal, but it, it's not something that we actually experience as valid or worthwhile. And I, you know, again, this is why it's so bad. Like the set, the spiritual segregation in the body of Christ is as offensive and dangerous as the ethnic segregation in the body of Christ, because it's the people who have an emphasis to do and embodied prayers. Like it's not that they're wrong. It's that they're incomplete. And there are churches that have the opposite problem. They don't want to do anything except go in a room and feel feelings about Jesus. And it's not that they're wrong. It's that they're incomplete. And, and we need to recover, you know, the wholeness of what God is doing in the world. And we, by design, are going to be um, incapable of doing that unless we're in deep transformative relationship with God and with our neighbors. Um, and I was listening to a devotional this morning because I'm trying to get more into reading scripture, not task oriented and not reading about scripture. And or just reading that, to prepare for a sermon. Right, which yeah. I mean, I love and which is spiritual work for me. Yes. And it's not, but I, you know, is the passage in Corinthians where, where Paul is saying, you know, to to one is given a spirit of wisdom and to another a spirit of knowledge and to another gift of tongues and to another interpretation and to another gifts of healing and to another um, miraculous powers. And, and like just this idea that literally that by design, you have a gift that makes no sense and is not it does not edify apart from the other gifts. Like you were made to be incomplete, incomplete without the spirit of Jesus and incomplete without the company of the misfit saints around you. And we just don't get that um, because it requires so much vulnerability to say, I am incomplete and also I am worthy. I am a sinner and also I am redeemed. Like just this non-duality, which is so hard for our Western minds to Except, and I mean, I'm talking about me, like mm-hmm. me, I continually catch myself trying to categorize people into like good and bad. And there's no, there's no good person and there's no bad person. There's, there are people who are a mix of both. And that is so frustrating when you're trying to control people well, and control your life. <laughs> I made a huge mistake, um, a number of years ago when I was first entering uh, the life of Dorada church, um, I spent quite a bit of time in previous years studying um, healing ministry and prophetic ministry and really love a lot about that world. I mean, there are, of course, many abuses and things that are false, uh, but there are some really wonderful, beautiful, powerful things about that. And I went to um, some of the longtime members saying, you know, I... 
I feel led of God to do these kinds of things and maybe even to hold special services for the community just, you know, to put out a banner on the front of the property saying, hey, we're going to do um, a healing service and on, you know, the first Monday of whatever month and come and uh, would love to pray for you. And the reaction was, no, we don't do that. Please don't do that. You'll you'll make us uncomfortable. And instead of leaning into that and um, having more and more conversation with people, I just pulled back, pulled mm-hmm. back, and I did not engage. I left it alone. And I, I wish I had followed what I felt the Spirit was leading me to do and, and really engaged, not forced, not shamed um, people um, who did not feel comfortable with that, not um, not run over them. But I, I wish I had engaged. Yeah, more. I think, I mean, and, I, and I've made the same mistakes in, in every congregation I've ever served. And I think, like, you, you tell yourself that it's because you're accepting people where they are. Yes. And you tell yourself that it, it's loving. And you tell yourself that it's about not... But you in know, reality, you are misforming them in their discipleship. Well, it, it's two things. Like, yes, I think... I mean, that that story about the woman who couldn't use her hands because mm-hmm. people just assumed that she couldn't use her hands. And so she never got the chance to develop, you know, the gift that she had and the abilities that she had. Like, I think what what you really have to scratch deeper down into that and go like, OK, but what, let's make sure that there's not a reason that you walk away that isn't so selfless and, and pretty. Right. And I think and I'm talking about me now and not you, but a lot of times when I step back from things really the ugly truth uh, um, underneath the this the story I tell myself about what it means the ugly truth is it's spiritual pride mm-hmm. like I think like well I can get this but you can't mm-hmm. right like I'm like I think somehow I'm different than you or the Jesus in me is somehow different than the Jesus in you I think like and the Lord has gotten me to this point but not you it has right? been proven today that you're not different yeah, you yeah, can't stop no, sharing I know Zoom. I can't stop sharing yeah um, thank like you for bringing it us. back there I really appreciate that no so I, I think it's that and I think it's also this idea that you you pull away because you prioritize your own role and, and your own yes. comfort and yes. your own relationships over what is good for the community. So it's not that you're saying like, oh, I'm accepting you as you are and I'm not going to push you too hard and maybe you're right and I'm wrong. It's not that. It's that A, you think you're better and B, you don't want to accidentally lose your job and you know, you just don't you don't trust the Lord in that. And I think like there's a way to hold on to get curious and to ask questions from a place of humility that's not about you know, it's not a Mark Driscoll, like get on the bus or I'm going to run you over. Right. It's not that, but it can't be the one extreme being Mark Driscoll saying like, I know best. I'm the only one who knows best get in my will. And then you'll be in God's will. And if you don't, I don't care what happens to you. And I'm going to rejoice in your suffering. It, it can't be that, or, you know, the pastor has quivering massive availability. Just let me stick my, you know, sure. stick my mm-hmm. thumb up and see which way the wind is. There is a, a middle path that again, both of those two extremes allow control, right? And one, you take total control and one, you cede control. The reality is when you're walking in faith, it's messy, it's vulnerable. Like every step of the way you're questioning, am I right here? Where are you, God? What is happening? What is that's messy? And that's why we, we are, we believe that actually, um, you know, that, we walk by faith and not by sight. Right. And I think, you know, this is a total control, which is not a really generally a problem in our particular kind of church culture. But the problem that I do see all the time, and 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 we really covenant with one another not to do this. But, I mean, I know a lot of pastors, not in this presbytery, okay, not in this presbytery, but I know a lot of pastors that, like, when they get together, what they do is complain about how awful and dumb the people in their church are right. Like, and basically this, the session becomes their fall safe. Like look at all the wonderful things I would do, but I can't cause the session won't let me. And the reality is like, I just don't, I just think, I think that's real convenient. I do. Um, because first of all, you don't have to stay there and take that paycheck. 
Um, but second of all, I just think a lot of us, we like being the ones who say, well, let's do a healing ministry. And the session says no. And we go, okay, I did my part. I tried. I tried. <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> Nobody can blame me for nothing because I said, you know, like the, the system that we have, the unhealthy role that the session plays often as a blocker in many Presbyterian churches, like pastors rail against it, but it also serves us because it absolves us of responsibility because we can tell a story about all the things we tried to do that the session wouldn't let us do. And so our churches are failing, but at least it's not my fault. Mm -hmm. And that I think is just really, we just need to own that, that it's not just that it meets the felt needs of the members. It also meets the felt needs of the pastors. And that's not true of every pastor, obviously, but, it is true of a lot of pastors because I, because I've been that pastor. So I don't know what, what are you thinking about? We got to wrap. Yes. I have to pick up my child from school. What am I thinking about? Oh, I listened to part two of Tony Evans sermon on, um, KRT kingdom race Race theory or theology. That's it. Yes. Uh, as, uh, opposed to critical race theory and, um, yeah, he places a lot of emphasis on interpersonal reconciliation. And, um, and the scripture does that. We are ministers of reconciliation. Christ has reconciled us by his death and resurrection. And in the church, we are brothers and sisters. We are citizens of the kingdom. And so it is right to say that... Um, we focus on individual uh, reconciliation between people of different ethnicities, right? You and I are friends, and that's no small thing in this world. It's part of the salt and light and mustard seed of the kingdom. And so, yes, we should lift that up and celebrate that and emphasize that because the Bible does. And still what's missing in part two is the church's witness in society. Evans, is he's preaching from Ephesians 2, where the Apostle Paul um, is talking about the reconciliation between Jews and Gentiles in Christ in the church. But he doesn't go to places like, um, you know, in the book of Acts, when Paul casts a demon out of a girl, she's a slave girl, right. and um, her demon possession uh, gives her the ability to tell fortunes. Which makes her, her, those who are enslaving her, it makes them money. Makes them money. And so when Paul casts his demon out, she loses that power, they lose their money, and they are angry. Right, uh, I believe there's a riot in Ephesus because of it. My problem with our brothers and sisters who are conservative evangelicals is that they're so focused on individual reconciliation that they've lost sight of this idea that the church's um, ethnic reconciliation has an effect, does something, changes society. They are using the gospel to prop up their positions in the culture war. Yeah, I mean, which means yeah. let's 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 be reconciled, you and I, black and white, you know, whatever ethnicity, but let's leave the system alone. Right. And I, I mean, I think two things for, for a long time before I dropped out of my D men program, that's not demon, that's doctorate of ministry program. Like I was going to do my project on how a people's theology of eschatology um, shapes their ecclesiology, which has just as Those enough big words. 25 cent words to actually make it be a good project. Right. But it's just this idea that what you believe about the culmination of history affects the way you live in church, right? So eschatology is sort of the end time, mm -hmm. the, the, the culmination of history, and ecclesiology is how you think about being church, like what that means. And what you believe about the end shapes how you live in the present, right? And so to me, I, I think that 
for a lot of contemporary evangelicals, they have what I consider to be a wrong understanding of eschatology. Their their understanding of eschatology simplified is this world is garbage. God's done with it. The fire next time, God's going to throw it away like garbage. We'll be raptured up out of here. It's worthless. Moving on, right? And so when you think that that is how the world is going to end... That means that when you are gathered in your church community, you have no interest in participating in the redeeming of the world. You have no interest in differentiating between what is good and what is bad because you just think it's all bad and ultimately worthless anyway. You don't think that God is redeeming the world, so you're not participating in it because your understanding of the end affects your life together in the present. And so that's why I think there's this unhealthy overemphasis on interpersonal and and this this ignoring of the um the witness of scripture that the people of God are always interested and maybe you can't snap your fingers and change the system but you can for sure tell the truth about it right and and so i would just well, say it's, it's it's funny to me that it's at this point that um, our conservative brothers and sisters stop talking about America being a Christian nation. Well, and I just think, like, the reality is, let's just be honest. The evangelical church has all sorts of interest and energy and passion to um, change the system when it comes to reproductive rights, when it comes to ending um, the legal option for a safe abortion in this country. And honestly, like, I'm not... You know, I'm I'm nuanced enough about abortion to lose my card in the liberal community, right? Like I am the daughter or the granddaughter of um, a, a man who was adopted as an infant. There are many children who are, are so dear to me in my life who were adopted. And so I, I you know, it is, I believe that it is really important that, um, that, people have access to health care. And I actually appreciate the position of the PCUSA that the abortion needs to be safe, legal, and rare, right? But I do want to work tirelessly in the world to promote a culture of life that, um, you know, does not end at birth, but also includes the sanctity of life for the, for those who are not yet born. I want that. And then I want to disrupt the same systems that steal and kill and destroy life after birth. Right. And I just really quibble with Evans. I mean, and maybe he didn't, it's more what he didn't say, but like, we all know that the evangelical church cares about disrupting certain systems. And so when you don't, care about disrupting the the school to prison pipeline or when you don't care about disrupting voter disenfranchise or when you don't care about disrupting redlining then you are showing that you actually are okay with um, injustice as long as you perceive it to be favoring your personal interests and that's ugly and it's unfaithful so I, you know I I think the greatest example of that, you know, we're hard, we do, we don't do well with nuance, right? But I really appreciate the Paul's Philemon, right? I really appreciate what Paul does when he comes into relationship with um, a person who has run away from enslavement named Onesimus and his slave, the, the person who enslaved him is Philemon and they're both disciples of Jesus. And what Paul does, and it, and it, you know, it makes everyone, no one likes Paul in this place because he doesn't say, Onesimus, you were unjustly enslaved and this isn't God's will for you. And, and, you know, go and live your life and do whatever you want because this is evil on the face of the earth. Although the system of slavery is evil on the face of the earth. And I believe that Paul knows that, but, but what he does is seek reconciliation between Onesimus and Philemon, but not a reconciliation where he says, Philemon, go back. God wants you to be a slave, serve I'm sorry, Onesimus, go back. God wants you to be a slave, serve Philemon as if he were Jesus. This is the will 
This is the system, right? He says, no, go back. And then he sends him with a letter to Philemon and says, this is not your slave. This is your brother. And you have to be in relationship with him as your redeemed brother. And that's your witness to the world. So it is an interpersonal witness, but one that no longer conforms to the system that society recognizes as godly, right? So it's not either or, it's both, it's both and. and. Absolutely. And the thing that I think is problematic about somebody like Tony Evans um, or, or evangelical church in general talking about how interpersonal things are going to save the day is that A, people in churches, are they're not multi-ethnic churches. And if they are multi-ethnic, they're monocultural. And people don't actually have authentic, soul-deep friendships with people of other ethnicities. And they might have acquaintances or relationships, but so many people in the evangelical church are basically told that there's only one way to do and be and think. And if someone makes you feel uncomfortable, then you don't have to be in relationship with that person. And so people of other ethnicities often don't want to be in relationship with somebody who's not interested in in acknowledging the full truth of their lives, right? And a lot of people will come into that community for a while and then get to a point where they realize people here don't care about me. And when I am, you know, bleeding, when I'm afraid my child is going to get shot on the street, they tell me they don't want to think about it because it makes them uncomfortable. Bye, I'm out. Because they recognize that that's not authentic friendship. Like if you can't say to somebody, go be warm and well fed, Right. If you if that's a problem, then it's a problem to say to a black family in your congregation, like, I know a young unarmed black teenager was shot in our community last night, but honestly, we don't really care and we're sure the police were right and he probably asked for it and I don't understand why you're upset about it and take it away. Like I think the problem with asking for interpersonal relationships is that often white Christians only want a multi-ethnic friendship if it makes them feel good about themselves. Sure. If the person, the cross-racial friendship validates them as not racist, but if that person makes them feel uncomfortable, if that person dares to tell the truth about their experience of life or their experience in the friendship, most white Christians will be like, no, that's not who I am. How dare you? And in the friendship. So they become really transactional, inauthentic friendships. People know that to belong in the community, to hold on to their jobs, they have to talk and and sing and dance in a certain way and then people people in the majority culture point to those tokened people and say this is proof that things really aren't bad i have my one black friend who says everything's fine so you're you you say that interpersonal friendships will save the day but you won't be in interpersonal friendships because you're only interested in being in relationship with people who validate your worldview and that is not a friendship and i'm done screaming about other people right now for now so let's talk about what we're preaching this sunday we're preaching this we're finishing up our series on uh, servant life and i think we're looking at a text from revelation of all speaking of ethnicity all people languages tribes uh, around the throne and we're celebrating all saints day it's october 31st and we're remembering those who are in the church triumphant and you guys are doing a wonderful glorious art installation maybe maybe <laughs> we're gonna try um yeah and i honestly am still just i i want to look at the text and shockingly study it some more because i think I, i'm i'm not quite sure how to flesh out the connection between you know the the holiness the power the joy um and wisdom of a servant and that image of of the redeemed of the servants who've heard well done good and faithful servant like there there's a there's just a deeper yeah. connection there that I, I want to get to that's captured in the word saint and i think that's where i'm going uh, that the servants of jesus are saints and we don't see ourselves as saints but uh, paul i mean even <laughs> as as <laughs> As poorly as the Corinthian congregation behaved, yeah, he addressed them as saints. And so um, I, I think I may begin there th with this idea that we, the servants of Jesus, are saints. And um, we are um, going somewhere. This, this whole life with Jesus is transforming, changing us, and taking us somewhere. And that is that um, vision 
uh, number one, in uh, the, the first part of Revelation around uh, about all of these ethnicities gathered around the throne, but also later on at the end of the book, new creation. Well, and I think maybe part of the connection is to be able to say that, you know, when we when we help people understand a saint, not according to sort of Roman Catholic hagiography of like someone who is perfect and someone who's never sinned and someone who works miracles, um, but as servants of God, when we, when we do that, then I think it's helpful because people can bring their flawed, messy, sinful, backsliding, you know, nonlinear journeyed selves to the table and say, if my belonging, if my sanctification is dependent not upon my worthiness and not upon my record, but upon God's choice to have me as a servant and my choice to serve, then that means no matter where I am in my life, if I'm sitting on death row, if I'm sitting in a toll booth, if I'm home with children, if I'm in a nursing home, there is nothing, no circumstance that can rob me of the power of choosing to serve God where I am with what I have. And I think that's a really freeing and, and well, on the walk, message. we were talking about the scripture, uh, about the great cloud of witnesses. And one of the things I believe that teaches us is that we are to um, see the saints from Mother Teresa to the current mothers in the church as people God has used, is using mightily, and we are with them. We're in that line. We're in that family. If God has done what God has done through them, their service, God has used their serving in wonderful, powerful ways, then God is at work in our serving as well. Yeah, and I think too often when we tell the stories of the saints, they're like spiritual CEOs. And so it's mm -hmm. really important to say, like, we, we need to really understand that what, in fact, I think Lisa Coons told a story, or maybe it was like one of those Radio Babylon um uh, cartoons, I should look it up, where like one of the stand-ins for typical Western Christians asks Jesus about like, who's the greatest saint, or is Mother Teresa the greatest saint in, in the world, and or the greatest disciple, and he's like, no, the greatest disciple is Teresa, and she's feeding her chickens right now in Guatemala. Mala. I mean, just this idea that like, what we see is not the whole reality. And so wherever you are in your journey, if you desire to serve Jesus, you can. And that is good news. So we're out of time. Uh, we're past out of time. Sorry, Matthew. Um, if you want to hear more about what God is doing at Derida Prez, if you want to see the video of worship last week that Yolando um, labored so heavily over because it was an outside recording and that's really hard. And I want to encourage you to do that because he he sang a little inadvertent solo at the end of it. And since he, he you, you know, you started so it, wrong. you started it with beginning with my... Um, my feebleness in the presbytery meeting. So anyway, check it out. It's on YouTube. Subscribe, like, and subscribe the Derida Prez YouTube channel. And, um, <laughs> and you can also listen to um, Yolanda's messages at the Derida Church podcast, which is on the Podbean website. And you can look at it all from the Derida Prez, um, D-E-R-I-T-A, Derida Prez org, And if you want to find out more about what's happening at The Grove, you can go to our website, which is thegrovecharlotte.org. You can um, get uh, this whole service on um, Facebook on the live stream. It's, it's cached there. You can watch sermons or listen to sermons on our YouTube channel or on our podcast, which is The Grove Church Podcast, which you can find on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can worship with Derida at 10.30 on Sundays. You can worship with The Grove at 10 on Sundays. Um, thanks for listening. We will talk to you next week.